0: Today, from Just World Podcast, I'm Helena Carbon, the president of Just World Educational. We work to expand the discourse on vital issues of global peace and justice, especially in the long-troubled Middle East. This is the seventh and final episode in a special mini-series we're releasing as part of our cast-led Plus Ten project, which started on December 27th and has been running for 22 days. This project marks the 10th anniversary of Israel's Operation Cast Lead assault against Gaza, which ran during these same 22 days exactly 10 years ago. If you're on social media, we're using the hashtag hashcastleadplus10 to draw together all the activities we're running on our Twitter and Facebook accounts. Do follow us on both platforms. We also have a great page on Operation Cast Lead in the resource section of our website, www.justworldeducational.org. There you'll find links to all the episodes in this podcast miniseries and many other useful materials. So do check out that resource page on our website. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I held recently with Leila El Haddad a political analyst, author, and rights activist who is from a family deeply rooted in Gaza, Palestine, though she currently lives near Baltimore, Maryland. I first met Leila when she and I were both doing news reporting from Gaza in the immediate aftermath of the Palestinians' 2006 parliamentary election, which was won fair and square by Hamas. An achievement that thereafter brought down upon them the wrath of Israel and the United States. Over the years since we met, my publishing company, Just World Books, has published three of Leila El Haddad's books. The first, Gaza Mom, was a compilation of the amazing blog posts she wrote between 2004 and 2010 on her eponymous blog, Gaza Mom. Then came The Gaza Kitchen, a Palestinian culinary journey, which she co-authored with Maggie Schmidt and which came out in 2012. Finally, in 2015, I published an anthology of writings from and on Gaza titled Gaza Unsilenced that Leila co-edited with the Gaza-based literature teacher Rifat Laarir. The Gaza Kitchen, I should note, was the very first in a series of cookbooks that have come out in recent years that have all presented Palestinian cuisine beautifully to the English-speaking world. In September 2013, Leila was the chief in-Gaza guide to the now tragically deceased Antony Bourdain when he made his iconic visit to Gaza to explore that Palestinian region's quite distinctive food heritage. And in 2016, Leila and her co-author Maggie Schmidt joined the London-based restaurateur and cookbook author Yotam Otolenghi at a special program organized at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York to present and honor the food heritage of Jerusalem and its region. Leila truly is a pioneer of the Palestinian cultural pride movement. But back in 2008... She was living with her husband Yasin and their two young children in Durham, North Carolina, when she heard the terrifying news of Israel's first big shock and awe assault on Gaza in late December of that year. Her parents, both of them retired physicians, were in their apartment in hard-hit central Gaza city. One reason Leila and her family could not be in Gaza at that time was because her husband, a Palestinian, grew up in a refugee camp in Lebanon and is therefore forbidden by Israel from entering Gaza, an area that has been under Israeli military occupation continuously since 1967. So if Leila wants to conduct a normal family life with her husband and children, she has to do so elsewhere. The situation of Israeli-enforced separation that Leila al-Haddad and her family suffer is one that's very familiar to Palestinians everywhere. In Gaza itself, more than 70% of the population are refugees who since 1948 have been forcibly prevented by Israel from returning to their homes and loved ones inside the area that became Israel that year. And the terrible conditions of life that Israel has imposed on the whole of Gaza's population ever since it forcibly occupied the Gaza Strip in 1967 means that a huge proportion of the people who grew up in Gaza have been unable to find work or a decent future there and over the decades have gone elsewhere to find stability. As a result, every single person in Gaza today has large numbers of close family members daughters, sons, sisters, brothers, aunts, who are outside the Strip. And because of Israel's restrictions, they find it very hard, if not impossible, to ever return there. And thus, in nearly every part of the world, including here in the United States, there are also large numbers of Palestinians who have close family in Gaza, and who every time Israel launches a new assault against the Strip, experience the pain of watching Israeli bombs and weapons tear apart the lives of their loved ones who are still there, but who have to do so from a distance. In an earlier episode in this mini-series, we heard from Dr. Basim Naim, who was Gaza's Minister of Health in December 2008, about some of the horrors that he witnessed there during Operation Cast Lead. Today, we hear from Leila El haddad what it was like as a Gaza-Palestinian of many generations to learn about that assault from the outside, knowing that her own parents and many of her other close relations and friends were still in Gaza and exposed to the brunt of Israel's bombs. I started by asking Leila if she could recall how that felt.
1: Yes, absolutely. And uh, just to provide some context, this was at a time... Uh, in, um, you know, December of 2008, January 2009, when social media was still pretty nascent, you know, Twitter had sort of just taken off. And, um, things weren't as information, I should say, live, you know, news feeds from areas of sort of live conflict or whatever, um, was not as readily available as it would have been now. Meaning, like, not everybody was equipped with a smartphone that could immediately you know, um, film what was happening around them and upload it and put it on Facebook or there wasn't even Facebook Live at that point. And the reason I mentioned this is because um people were that were in my situation, um, you know, were struggling in the sense um of trying to, you know, have access to information, figure out what was happening to loved ones, amplify that information to the world and it wasn't as easy to do as it would have been now in 2019. So when I you know we began to hear that um, Gaza was being attacked of course it was painful and you feel um, impotent and at a loss and um, of course part of you as many Palestinians and others can relate you end up having survivor's guilt and um, you want so badly to sort of be there with them but at the same time you realize that you have a role to play, and I think this sort of universally applicable, a role to play on the outside in terms of being able to get that information out there or educate people about what's happening. But it was an incredibly difficult trial, um, not only because you never knew what was going to be happening to your parents. Thank God that we had Skype at that time. Um, in the limited hours of electricity when the power was on because of course the um, Israeli army was uh collectively punishing the Palestinian population of Gaza by often at that especially at that time by turning off the electricity at certain times and so we wouldn't have uh they wouldn't have access to Wi Fi or internet. When they did, of course, they we would immediately sort of make a plan to communicate via Skype or I would call them on the phone if the phone lines were up and we would um Uh, communicate that way and what I started to do was have them you know convey to me in small snippets of what was happening and I would then go on to Twitter and elsewhere and try to kind of um, relay that information to the world but it was a very trying experience I think you know obviously it was more trying for those who were living through it there but trying to relay what was happening to my children trying to kind of grasp and figure out you know what it is that was going on, because this was sort of the first major invasion on Gaza, then two more would follow, of course. So a lot of sort of new artillery was being used, a lot of new tactics, um, trying to make sense of all of that, was incredibly trying. And I think is just sort of a microcosm, example of, you know, through the the longevity of the Palestinian struggle, of what it's like to be on the outside looking in when you were once sort of on the inside looking out. Um, And how can you then you know, maintain, you know, your role or your ability to um, relay that struggle to your children, you know, to your offspring, to others around you, instead of just becoming sort of complacent um, about it. So it must have been terrifying for your children. How old were they at the time? So at the time, I had two children. My son, Yusuf, was four years old, and my daughter, Noor, actually turned one-year-old in the middle of the invasion so she was on january 1st was her birthday and i remember writing a blog post about that experience
2: um you know, i trying to organize a birthday party for a one-year-old at the same time that your own parents were under the
1: like exactly the terrible- and i and it was just that thought process of of um not even really we didn't really organize a party but just sort of commemorating that remembering that she had turned one just as all of these. And I remember listing some, many of these children that had died on this day that she was born. Um, so just kind of those um, striking contrasts, um, you know, always going through my mind. Uh, Could you share a couple
2: of the conversations that you had with your your dad at that time?
1: Yeah, um, I feel like I, I need to go back to my... Um, Um, some of the writings I did at the time. And, um, you know, maybe I could read I have a small passage from one, if that's something you want me to do. Yeah, I would love to have you read it because it's very powerful. Let Uh, me see if I can... um, (laughs) Hang on, I'm just looking at my bookshelf quickly. So uh, what I was doing at the time is writing, uh, based on my conversations with my father, writing uh, out these uh, very poignant blog posts and um, which eventually some of them made it into the the book, Gaza Mom. And one of them um, that I'm going to read for you is is, uh, Bloodied in Gaza. It was um, based on a longer essay that I wrote for The Guardian at the time. This was uh, Durham, North Carolina, December 30th, 2008. There is a complete blackout in Gaza now. The streets are as still as death. I'm speaking to my father, Musa al-Haddad, A retired physician who lives in Gaza City on Skype from Durham, North Carolina, where I have been since mid-2007, the month Gaza's borders were hermetically sealed by Israel and the blockade of the occupied territory further enforced. He is out on his balcony. It's 2 a.m. I can only see gray plumes of smoke slowly rising all over the city. Everywhere I look, he says, as though they were some beautiful, comforting byproduct of some... Hideous, malicious event. My father was walking out when the initial strikes began. I saw the missiles falling, and I prayed. The earth shook. The smoke rose. The ambulances screamed, he told me. My mother was working her shift at the Red Crescent Society when one of the police stations behind the clinic was leveled. Now, three days later, they're trapped in their own home. My father takes a deep, restorative sigh before continuing. (sighs) <sighs> Uhud Barak, he's, he's gone crazy. He's bombing everywhere and everything. No one is safe. Explosions are audible in the background. They sound distant and dull over my laptop speakers, but linger like an echo in death's valley. They evoke terrifying memories of my nights in Gaza only two years ago. Nights that, to this day, haunt my four-year-old son, who refuses to sleep on his own. Can you Can you hear them? My father continues. Our house is shaking. We're shaking from the inside out. My mother comes to the phone. Hello, hello, dear, she mutters. Her voice is trembling. I I had to go to the bathroom, but but I'm afraid to go alone. I I wanted to go perform wudu before prayer, but, but I was scared. Remember the days when we would go to the bathroom together because we were too afraid to go alone? She laughs at the thought. It seems amusing to her now that she was scared to find her death in a place of relief, that she was now terrified of the same seemingly ridiculous scenario. It was really the fear of being alone. When you hear the news before it becomes news, you panic for clarity. You want someone to make sense of the situation, package it into comprehensible terms and locations just to be sure it's not you this time. It's it's strange, my whole body's shaking. Why is that? Why is that? she rambles on, continuous explosions audible in the background. There they go again, one, boom, after another, fifteen, before that, one or two, maybe twenty total so far. Counting and systemizing the assaults makes them easier to deal with, more technical, more remote. The rains of death continue to fall in Gaza and silently the world watches and silently governments plotted, how shall we make the thunder and clouds rain death onto Gaza? And it will all be made to seem in the end of the day as a response to something. Rockets, broken truces, irreconcilability. Monday morning, five sisters from one family were killed when Israeli warplanes attacked a mosque next to their home. Four-year-old Jawahir Anwar on 8-year-old Dina Anwar, 12-year-old Sahar Anwar, 14-year-old Ikram Anwar, 17-year-old Tahrir Anwar. The small shop down the street from my parents' home next to the King's Mosque where many of the Rumal neighborhoods affluent residents pray opens for a little while after prayer. My father goes and gets whatever he can while he can. They have one package of bread left, but insist they're okay. Those with children are the ones who are truly suffering. Umra Ramadan's grandchildren will only sleep in her arms now. They are wetting their pants again. My son Yusuf chimes into the conversation unceremoniously, popping his head into my laptop screen. Sido, I like the fatushi he used to make. Sido, are you okay? Habibi, when we see each other again, if we see each other again, I'll make it for you, he promises. The very possibility seems to comfort him, no matter how illusory. It's my daughter Nood's birthday on January 1st. She will be one year old. I cannot help but think, who was born in bloodied Gaza today? Wow, that stuff is so powerful, huh? I know, I forgot, I haven't read it in so long too, you know, that it's uh, kind of going back. Yeah, mm-hmm. sometimes
2: when you read something that you yourself have written, when you read it, 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 like, it, it has so much more, um, resonance. I don't know. Yeah. absolutely. But, Thank you so much for doing that. Um yeah. I I think let's let's move on to the issue okay. I know like dissonant, um, but move on to the issue of US policy during and after the yeah. Fed because this was the waning days of the George W. Bush administration. Um and it seemed to have been timed very much for that, you know, when there would be like a a lame duck um administration yeah. here in Washington. Sure. Yeah. So what do you recall from both um, President Bush and President-elect Barack Obama during car sled that sticks with you?
1: Well, I mean, I just remember that people initially had really pinned their hopes on the fact that Obama was going to be sworn in soon as president and were completely, uh, you know, utterly disappointed when we found out that essentially, you know, Bush had told the Israelis... You know, you have this much time. And Obama echoed those words until to do what you need to do. And Obama was basically in agreement instead of saying this needs to end immediately. It was like you have a free, you know, blank check, um, free reign to do whatever it is you want to do. No questions asked, no accountability um, for this many days. And um, I mean, just that thought that, you know, the world's most powerful country um and its president's new president and president elect knew what was going on um the magnitude of what was happening and again, this was something unprecedented um you know the sad reality is that it would be followed by two subsequent invasions, but this had never something on the scale we had never witnessed this before in Palestine that they knew and they said you know it makes them complicit, and they said, you know go right ahead, and that they could have stopped it, and they didn't.
2: Um, there was definitely a, at least one resolution in the um, Security Council, a ceasefire resolution, and I think maybe more than one, where, you know, they vetoed it.
1: Forgotten about that. Even more appalling, I think. Um, but again, I think sometimes we foolishly pin our hopes on, you know, um, governments when history has shown repeatedly that change comes from the outside in, not from the inside out, whether here in the United States or elsewhere, right? And so I think this and the subsequent invasions really bolstered and, you know, boosted the BDS movement um, and I think really helped cement that fact in people's minds that if you didn't already know Oslo was dead, that if you didn't already know the two-state solution, and now more so in 2019 than... At that point in two thousand and eight, um, that it's this is all a sort of a smokescreen and an illusion, and the sooner that we recognize this, the better sort of as a global community of concerned citizens. That's true. Um, and you you said that obviously
2: there are, were the two major Israeli assaults after mm-hmm. that was led with the first of this series and very shocking in it in its in its own way. But in a sense, also, the uh, the failure to hold Israel in any way accountable for Cost led presumably gave them the permission to go ahead with the next one in 2012 and then with the truly devastating one in 2014, both of which um, happened under President Obama.
1: Absolutely. It set the precedent. And that's why I keep saying, you know, by way of context that this was the first one, that it was something... You know, um, on a scale that we haven't seen before, um, and then the sad reality is, it became sort of not run of the mill, but it became one of a series of mowing the lawn um, in Gaza, right? Or mowing of the lawns in Gaza. And so, yes, it did set this precedent and made it completely acceptable to, um, you know, come down hard on Gaza without repercussions, without consequence. And and um, of course, this is with the complete cooperation and enthusiastic thumbs up of neighboring countries like Egypt for example and um, um, and, and, and also Canada. as I recall
2: at the time in, in back in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, um, President Mahmoud Abbas was kind of discreetly or less discreetly Absolutely. cheering the Israelis Absolutely. on. You know, so Absolutely. there was
1: yeah. a major yeah. a major
2: factor of Palestinian division
1: involved in that. Yes, yes, that's true. That's that's very much correct. And again, not much much has changed on the ground when one thinks about it. Um, from that time onwards, um, it's a completely, in the words of many a UN um, director, a man-made catastrophe that has, you know, the seeds of which were sown and by men, and which can be then undone by men. And women. women. <laughs> and women, right. <laughs> so, um, I think the undoing is more. <laughs> the women will, will have a stronger role in that. But my point being that, yeah. you it's know, that all the parties involved have an interest, a vested interest in crushing Gaza and make sure it remains subservient, you know, um, to use sort of the more sterile language contained, and that it never truly thrives or, or becomes productive. What kind of
2: actions can concerned citizens, especially here in the United States, be taking that will help to ensure that the people of Gaza and the rest of Palestine can actually finally enjoy their rights?
1: Uh, uh, that's an excellent question, and it can be very easy, I think, to feel hopeless and um see this as a you know larger than life struggle um it's usually phrased in the so in a the way of conflict which i don't like that word but um and feel like there's not well this has been going on for so long i there's nothing possibly that you know i can do about it it's usually from the western perspective seen as um well why can't these you know i frequently hear why can't these two people just get along when of course it's not about people getting along, but rather about a sort of basic injustices and rights that need to be addressed. So I always say, you know, when I usually give a presentation, in the end I get asked this question, first of all, not to feel hopeless, um, which is why I like to generally focus on the hope and the small sort of wins and things that people are doing on the ground, um, the positivity, despite all of this uh because i feel like that reminds us that no matter what you know it's this struggle to survive for sure but there is um, sort of beauty being created despite the impossible odds to you know completely erase one's you know identity and um and any hopes and horizons of for a productive future um and so then we could the minimum that we should um ask of ourselves is then what can we do here in the comfort of our own homes to be able to spread this message and I always sort of give a little checklist but the most basic one I start with is start by educating yourself and I give several resources you know um, your wonderful site (laughs) the Just World um, Educational Foundation Mondo Weiss is another excellent resource the electronic and the follow you know try to follow maybe just one of these sites regularly and slowly begin to educate yourself about the truth of the Palestinian struggle because once you are then empowered with that knowledge and accuracy you can begin to educate others by having small where small conversation starters that's an excellent way um maybe host dinners you can uh, sometimes i suggest to people you know host a dinner based on either my book the Gaza kitchen or you know if we're talking specifically about Gaza or there's another number of other Palestinian cookbooks um, and have a conversation maybe with people in your circles that aren't as, um, you know, aware of what's going on. And then, you know, then follow it up with look at what kinds of local um, BDS boycott divestment, and sanctions initiatives are happening in your community. There's a lot of states now, including Maryland, continuously, you know, state legislatures trying to pass anti-BDS laws that would uh punish businesses who engage in BDS. Uh, See what's going on there and, you know, go um, to your legislature and on advocacy days, which they have annually, and make your voices heard that this is not something that you accept, that it goes against the Constitution. This is a thing now. This is becoming mainstream. We're hearing about it more and more every day, of course, on the national level, but also on the state level. Um, you know, it's it's um, the, the tide is turning. So, you know, from the very small sort of don't feel overwhelmed if it's something that you have time for, just by educating yourself all the way up to getting involved in various BDS initiatives. If you are able, go and visit Palestine. Gaza is very difficult to visit, but at the very least, there's a lot of wonderful um, programs that you can get involved in that can help, you you know, go and um, see for yourself what's happening in the West Bank and elsewhere in Jerusalem. And that's really empowering as well. Uh, and then take those, you know, eyewitness, um, you know, testimonies back with you to your local groups, uh, you know, uh, and, and have presentations in your library, in your churches, in your mosques about what's going on. Everyone, I always say, even those that we assume, you know, in my own community, the Muslim community, assume have a very intimate knowledge of what's going on, don't. And so we're constantly trying to educate those in the, our closest communities because the more you know then the more the more educated decisions you can make and ultimately the reason this matters, I always have to go back to this, is because we pay more from our taxes as American taxpayers um, to Israel than any other country and so that's why it becomes then an onus on us our responsibility to be able to take action, to do something to counteract the effect of those taxes to the Israeli military. So now it's that. You know, of course, under Obama, that the bill was signed $4 billion a year in aid, military aid specifically going to Israel. So, one of the recent
2: things that's been happening um, just this year is this hashtag tweet your sobe, with the sobe being the traditional Palestinian embroidered dress. And this is associated with, in particular, Congresswoman Rashida Klaib um, coming to the Congress from her district in Michigan, and suddenly there's this sort of explosion of Palestinian cultural pride, which I think is great because, you know, the erasure that you talked about, the erasure of Palestinian identity and rights and culture, and this idea that the Palestinians have never been a people deserving of rights or Endowed with any culture, suddenly it's being challenged in a in a way that I haven't seen in this country in my 35 years here. Um, so you're somebody who's worked a lot to promote Palestinian cultural heritage, in particular the food heritage, but you know also poetry and other forms. What kind of possibilities do you see in terms of? Well, in, ter- in terms of, you know, Palestinian pride becoming a new thing and, and helping to bolster a, uh, a Palestinian rights-slash-Palestinian solidarity movement.
1: Right. I think, I mean, the two things can happen, you know, in parallel. Um, I'm always sort of a little bit wary of reducing the Palestinian struggle or tokenizing the Palestinian struggle by just saying it's, uh, it's just about, you know, our culture or something. But at the same time, that is an important component because of the very, you know, active efforts to try to invisibilize or erase or devalue that culture. And that was one of the driving forces behind... uh one of the main reasons I was excited to write the Gaza Kitson, because I wanted to kind of both codify that knowledge and present it to the world as a sort of different lens through which one can understand Gaza specifically and the Palestinian struggle at large. Um, so in that sense, the culture becomes a tool, another tool at our disposal through which we can present, you know, our struggle and our history and our, to, to the world. And I think that's important because so much of what we know or hear about Palestine, you know, is sort of universally whenever someone asks me, wherever I'm traveling, and I like to travel a lot, well, where are you from? And I say, Palestine, and they go, oh, yeah, where all the wars happening? That's the first thing that comes to their mind. So that's very frustrating as well. It's dehumanizing. Um, and so, that, in that sense, that's where the culture can play a role as a tool, is to, again, be able to present those very human portrayals of Palestine, to remind people that we are being human, human deserving of, you know, freedoms and rights. Um, and it's frustrating that one has to make the case, but we do, because the media overwhelmingly portrays images to the contrary.
2: Also, in the case of Palestinian food heritage and food culture, it's not just an attempt at erasure, okay. it's also... Appropriation and you know, which you it hasn't happened so much in terms of you know, the like the handwork, the tadris, the the embroidery, and the beautiful dresses. I mean, there have been some little attempts to appropriate that by the Israelis, but in terms of the food culture, it's massive that appropriation. I mean, you know, Israeli falafel and Israeli this and Israeli restaurants opening everywhere and celebrating.
1: Yeah, it's so, extremely frustrating, and there's always sort of a collective eye roll for Palestinians when this happens. Um, yes, I agree, and it's just a, you know, I'd like to think, maybe naively, that the tide is turning a little bit, and um, I'm very pleased to have been to have played a role in contributing something to the, you know, literature out there on, on Palestinian cuisine. Along yeah, with, I mean, there's your no no book,
2: yeah. and, and there's two or three other excellent books of Palestinian cuisine right. right now, but I think yours, the one that you and Maggie Schmidt wrote together, was kind of the pioneer,
1: and okay, I'm the publisher, but I still think it's the best. I think it's, it's so nice to hear that. And I'm constantly sort of tickled, um, I don't know if we. I just underestimate myself, but I'm constantly tickled when people come to me and say, you know, this book completely changed my perspective on the Palestinians. And it just makes me so happy because I feel like, not to say my work here is done, but meaning like sometimes just knowing that I was able to, you know, enlighten sort of one person as to the realities of what Palestinians endure makes me, it's very satisfying. Um, I always sort of relay the tale of the, when I first came to the U.S., I was 18, I was in college and i went to visit my brother in new york and i remember seeing all these falafel shops and only to discover that they were israeli and i was completely utterly shocked like what i it was just this kind of yeah it was a complete my 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 world sort of just came crumbling down like what's going on i don't understand like and it was this sort of moment of fear where you know what you grew up being told you don't exist as a people and then to see that this was sort of you know, coming full swing, not only do you not exist, but your foods are not your foods either. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's a uh, sort of a battle on many fronts.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Leila, for, for talking with us today. Um, here we are 10 years after led, And as you said, things really haven't changed much in Gaza, except possibly they've gotten worse. So thanks for everything that you do to help. Americans and other people understand this.
1: Thank you, thank you for providing this forum for us to be able to, you know, bring these realities to light. You know, we hope for a better and more uh, positive hopefully and more just 2019. Yeah.
0: Let's hope. Hi again. I hope you enjoyed that conversation I had with Leila El Haddad and found it informative. This is the seventh and final episode in our podcast mini-series, Cast Lead Plus 10. You can find out a lot more about our Cast Lead Plus 10 project and our other projects at our website, www.justworldeducational.org. There on the website, you'll also find a donate button, where you can learn how to support all of our very timely projects going into the future. Thanks. Be sure to follow what we do and stay well. For Just World Podcast, I'm Helena Carbon here in Washington, D.C.